Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, as we approach back to school, now is the time to get ready for your kids to get out of the house and for you to have time to join the union. That's right, jointheunion.us. Become part of the field army that will help protect American democracy for the next 15 months. Guys, we need your help on the ground. We need your help on the phones. We need your help on texts, on social media. Visit jointheunion.us and sign up today. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The LinkedIn Project. I'm your host, Reed Yalen. Today, I'm once again joined by Ron Insana, senior analyst and commentator at CNBC. Ron has been a highly respected business journalist and money manager for over three decades. He's written four books on Wall Street, and is a sought-after lecturer on domestic and global economics, financial markets, and economic policy issues. Today, he's coming to us from Inglewood, New Jersey. Ron, welcome back. Always great to be back. Thanks, Reed, for having me. So, Ron, always love having you back because we never know where the conversation's going to take us, but I do know where I want the conversation to start. So tell us, from your years of experience, from sitting on the set of CNBC, Tell us how you see the American economy. It feels like unemployment is down. It feels like wages are up. It feels like inflation is middling. And, you know, consumer goods purchases, as I saw as we were recording this morning, were higher than expected. So with all that, I guess, relatively speaking, good economic news, tell me why everybody's still so afraid of everything. It's a great question. And it's one that I don't understand because, you know, a lot of times around environments like this where people feel bad about the economy, even though it's doing well, you start worrying about this mythical psychological recession, which is never a reality. I mean, recessions are real. They don't just occur in people's minds. The reality is that the U.S. economy, both in absolute and relative terms, is doing quite well. We have, as you mentioned, unemployment said it's still hovering at a 50-year low. Unemployment for minorities is at a near all-time low. Most of the women who left the workforce during the pandemic are back. The prime age working force is bigger now than it was pre-pandemic. And so, Along with that, as you mentioned, consumer spending is still reasonably strong. Investment is extraordinarily strong. The Atlanta Federal Reserve publishes a tracker of uh, gross domestic product, and right now it's running at 5% even in the third quarter. That'd be the strongest quarter we've seen since we've come out of the pandemic, except for, you know, the immediate aftermath. And so the U.S. economy is actually in many ways quite hot. There are pockets of weakness. Manufacturing is a little weaker than we'd like. Real estate is just messed up in the sense that existing single-family home sales are down but home building is actually booming. So in a certain sense, it's a bifurcated economy. But when you look at the rest of the world, the U.S. by most measures is doing extraordinarily well and better than most of the rest of the world in an environment that was so punitive just a short time ago. Ron, you know, the big banks, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, you name them, they all do these forecasts. And I assume that's for their customers. I assume that's for the media. That's for maybe the Fed itself, but they put out these forecasts and they hope people will read them. And they obviously, I think, hope they'll be right or at least correct. 
maybe they don't want to be right, but they'll be accurate is maybe a better way to put it. And they all said, we're going to be in a recession. We're going to be in a recession. We're going to be in a recession. You know, the Fed's like, well, maybe we'll have to raise rates. Maybe we won't. Maybe we won't raise them as fast. So bottom line, does anybody know what the hell they're talking about? Right now, no. And I would include myself in that. Insofar as up until about five weeks ago, I was also calling for a recession sometime before the end of the year. The Federal Reserve has taken interest rates from zero at the depths of the pandemic to over five and a half percent today, with the possibility that they could still raise rates another quarter, another half point by the end of the year if the economy stays hot and inflation should, for some unknown reason, pick up noticeably. And so we all thought, and I think in fairness, with all the indicators that we've seen over the course of the last year, many of which traditionally have pointed to a recession sometime over a six to 15 month time horizon, we've all been surprised by the resilience of the economy, the fact that inflation has come down without a recession. You know, the print on consumer prices at the peak was 9.1%. We're down to about 3.2%. Inflation's been cut by two thirds. And that's happened without unemployment going up, it's happened without the economy slowing down in a meaningful way. So it's taken a lot of us by surprise. And typically when the Fed gets as aggressive as it has been, which is rare, by the way, they usually break something and cause a recession. We saw a little breakage in regional banks earlier this year that was contained, didn't turn out to be a systemic issue, and the economy keeps chugging along. And to a certain extent, there are a couple things, Reed, that we didn't take into account. Number one, the U.S. economy, because rates were so low and because individuals, homeowners in particular, and corporations locked in low long-term interest rates, they're less rate-sensitive in this cycle. We also have fiscal stimulus, which no one really expected to see. And we probably underestimated the impact of the Chips and Science Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, however poorly named that is, that's providing an infrastructure boom and a manufacturing production boom, if you will. We're building out capacity for semiconductors, computer chips. That's offsetting some of the tightening that the Fed's undertaken. And so I think the misread is for that very reason. We may have just not fully accounted for factors that have made this economy more resilient than anything we've seen in kind of a more traditional setting in our past. I've heard a couple of times, Ron, that wages are growing, right? Hourly wages, salaries are growing, and that the Fed sometimes takes action to slow the growth of wages. This would seem to me to be antithetical to a nation's central bank who is charged with, I assume, ensuring the currency and in some respects, the economy, I don't want to overstate it, of said wage earners. So why do they do that? There's this horrible antiquated model known as the Phillips curve, which really measured the relationship between wages and prices in Britain from the, I believe it was the 1870s to the 1960s, very closed economy to a certain extent, and found that as unemployment goes down, inflation goes up. And so what people have, particularly since the 1970s here in the US and quite frankly globally, worried about was this condition called a wage price spiral. And you had Larry Summers, a former Treasury Secretary, Jason Furman, who was the head of the National Economic Council during the Obama years, start crowing about this wage price spiral. Then it turned into wage price persistence. You know, a lot of different verbiage was used around this concern that if both wages and prices were going up, we'd have a replay of the 1970s. The data are actually pretty bad with respect to whether or not higher wages are tied to higher inflation, whether low unemployment is tied to higher inflation. In my mind, having wages growing faster than inflation, which is the case right now, it is the best of all possible worlds. Purchasing power is actually going up. 
the wage gains are accruing to the bottom 10% of wage earners in the United States. And that's a good thing because for the last 40 years, you know, labor has lost out to capital. So we're seeing some reduction in wealth inequality, not that much, but enough that it's making a difference to some people. If we can get inflation down a little further from where it is right now, you're almost in a Goldilocks environment, barring some event that really throws things, you know, kind of out of whack. I mean, doesn't it seem to you, Ron, that between a system that was created 150 odd years ago and a bunch of very wealthy ivory tower dwellers like Larry Summers, that maybe we should come up with a new dynamic, you know, for how we look at these things? Look, I don't love a lot of these rules that dominate current thinking because I think they are, as you you say, outdated and they kind of miss the point of a dynamic economy that also has rapid technological changes being utilized right now that are inherently disinflationary, if not deflationary. When we talk about AI, we talk about, you know, substituting technology for people. That has a net downward effect on prices and to an extent on wages as well. So yeah, I think we need some new models. And and I think worrying about the 1970s, which involved a series of shocks that we've gone through too, obviously the pandemic and, and the war in Ukraine, but we haven't gone through a 15-year period of shocks to the global economy that resulted in that stagflation we saw in the early 1980s. So I always thought that analog was wrong. I've been arguing against it since the pandemic ended. But you do have some you know, old-line <laughs> ivory tower folks who think you know, that we're going to need a Paul Volcker-style event, driving rates you know, substantially higher or the unemployment rate substantially higher to get inflation back to 2%. I never thought that was the case. I still don't. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. So let's talk a little bit about the idea of technology and the modern world, right? Because in the 1970s, you had to go to work. Got up in the morning, made your coffee, kissed your wife and your kids goodbye, and you went to work. But now, I mean, you and I, I assume, are doing this from our homes. And now we see a situation in which you have a tension, and I think that's probably the right word, between old line business, let's say insurance or name your big company, Um, you know, millions of younger Americans who some are going into the trades. And so, you know, there's in the service economy where you have to be there, but there's millions like us who are, we're probably the, I'm going to use the word leading edge because it makes us sound cool, Ron, but millions who don't have to go to an office. And maybe this was always coming. You talked about shocks in the pandemic, certainly probably helped that Zoom, right? And all the other things that came along with that that exploded in that time. And the downstream effect of that now, and I've been reading a lot about this, so I'm just knowledgeable enough, Ron, to be dangerous, is that now you have all these office buildings sitting empty. And so you have the Black Rocks of the world and the other big REITs and real estate holders who want all these bodies back, CEOs who want their bodies back. And the people are going, no, no, we're not going to do that. So tell us about how you see that economically, and then tell us a little bit about this commercial real estate thing. You know, and, and let me just say this, not to sound too populist, is that 
We now see stories of these gigantic billion, if not trillion dollar companies who are just giving their properties back to the bank rather than continuing to pay for it, which remember that during the economic crisis of 2008, 2009, remember that was moral hazard, Ron. It was a moral hazard to just leave your house and not pay it anymore. So that's a lot of stuff packed into a small area. So take us through it. Let's just start with the technology that's changed the way we both work and live, right? So we can do pretty much anything we want. You know, I have a 25-year-old daughter who's in office three days a week at most, which means on Friday, if they feel like working from somewhere other than New York City, she and her fiance can pick up and go somewhere for the weekend, come home Monday night, and then go back to the office Tuesday morning. So we're seeing this revenge travel take place because people are in office three days a week. The problem that that creates, as you rightly point out, is that we have a lot of dormant, if not empty office space. I think there's something like the equivalent of nine Empire State Buildings in New York that would be the equivalent of the vacant space that we have in Manhattan right now. And what happens to that? Can it be repurposed in any of these major cities? You alluded to one big firm giving the keys back. Westfield gave back the keys to a mall in San Francisco and just literally walked away from it. Right. Union Square, which the last time I was there was, Ron, when I lived in San Francisco, that was a bustling, vibrant area where we took our dog, we got our coffee, we read the Sunday New York Times, and now it is a ghost town. Yeah. And you see that in a lot of places. In fact, even some of the hot spots, and I that mean that both literally and figuratively, like Austin and Miami, that have seen a big influx of people in a post-pandemic, now they've become unaffordable, they've become crowded, people are starting to leave again. And so you have this problem, not necessarily with residential real estate, but really more with commercial real estate. Over the next year, about $1.4 trillion worth of commercial real estate debt is going to roll. Now, some of this obviously was taken on at much lower rates. So when that rolls and has to be refinanced at double the rate that might have been you know, taken out when those loans were first made, that creates a problem. And, and it's also true of multifamily housing or apartment dwellings that is going to see a similar type of problem over the next three to four years. So in my mind, this isn't the great financial crisis. You don't have a lot of derivatives. You don't have the type of leverage that we had that blew up the real estate and credit markets in 2006, 7, and 8, and ultimately 2009. To me, this looks more like the savings and loan crisis of the 1980s and early 1990s, where we'll find out who's on the hook for the debt. It's going to get restructured. It's going to be bought at much lower prices, and there's going to be a lot of pain. The question, in my mind, in addition to what do you do with all that vacant space, very hard to convert New York office buildings into apartments. Only about 25% of them can be. But what does the Federal Reserve do? Will it be a big enough hit to the economy that the Federal Reserve not only stops raising rates, not only pauses, but actually pivots and starts cutting rates again sometime in 2024 to ease the burden on the financial system? And then that actually becomes a tailwind for the economy rather than a headwind. So it's a critical question. It's a big nut. It's going to be a big problem. And I listen, I've talked to some people in government and I've suggested that they kind of get their minds wrapped around who the bag holders are, whether it's the banks, whether it's specific investor groups, whether you know it's these investment firms that you referred to. They need to know who's holding the bag because then they can figure out a more enlightened way to restructure this debt and not have it come to a head the way it did in prior periods. Well, because to me, that's the thing that I think that would be frustrating for me, I think, and probably enraging to millions, if not tens, if not hundreds of millions of Americans is once again, the idea that we are going to privatize profit in the good times and socialize the downside in the bad times, at least the bad times for these people. You know, do we have to expect that there's going to be a bailout of these guys who bought, built, rented buildings, you know, and like now it's like, well, 
you know, we're big enough that you can't let us just go down. Okay, but that never happens to the little guy. And I know I'm oversimplifying. Well, no, and, and not really. But I mean, yeah, you, you privatized profits and you socialize losses. That's been the reality of systemic financial problems over certainly the course of my career, which is almost 40 years now. Um, I think this is more like a workout, a restructuring that may have some government involvement. I think the bailout, if it comes, will be in the form of lower interest rates from the Fed that eases the burden. I don't think the Fed's going to step in and buy commercial real estate. I don't think you're going to see the federal government, which is already on the hook for plenty of debt as it is, you know, offer lifelines to these firms unless or until it presents a systemic financial risk that could topple the entire banking system. That's where you get into those moments where moral hazard be damned. You just have to, as an old conservative friend of mine who would no longer say this, said it to me during the great financial crisis, you have to hold your nose and just do what you hate doing. The risks are too large otherwise. And so I don't think we're there. I don't think that's where we're going. My focus right now, while that appears to be an emergent problem, is on what's going on elsewhere in the world as having the potential to be a little more upsetting to the pace of global economic growth and, and maybe even to domestic growth as well. And so I want to get to that in one second, but I do want to ask before we close out on the commercial real estate slash technology slash employee piece of this, which is when a CEO has gone to Wharton, Harvard Business, Stanford Business School, whatever it is, you know, it's case studies, case studies, case studies, finance, all the other stuff, right? A lot of math that I'm not good at. But at what point or do they ever realize, you said your daughter goes in three days a week, like, it might not be the world that you came up in. It might not even be the world that I think is ideal because I do believe that I would hope young people would rather be together than alone. I think that there is, you know, opportunities for mentorship, et cetera, et cetera. But Ron, the reality is reality, which is if people aren't going to come back to work, especially like the Gen Zers or maybe the younger millennials would be like, I'll go find another job. Yeah. Look, I am the proud owner of three Gen Z kids. There are times, one, where you, you want to impart your wisdom from having spent, you know, multiple cycles, you know, going through things in life. And then there are other times when you have to step back and realize it ain't your time and things have changed and there are some material differences in the way this generation is going to work and live. And I think that's hard for a lot of CEOs. And, and I agree with you. I mean, the, the mobility that comes with being in the office, the idea generation that happens, you know, kind of off the cuff in a hallway conversation or the notion of mentorship and the types of opportunity sets that exist when you're seeing someone face-to-face -face are extremely important. Having said that, I think the pandemic from a psychological perspective was far more profound for that generation than anyone realizes. They either lost their senior year of high school, their first year of college, their lives were disrupted in ways that maybe not as bad, but similar to ways in which other generations had their lives disrupted by war. As I used to argue with my kids a little bit, I said, listen, I said, my dad's generation had to leave the country, fight and die. Your generation has to stay home and live. So let's not overstate what this is. But again, it was very isolating. It was very disruptive. And they've now made a choice that there are other things they'd rather do you know, then simply commute an hour a day into Manhattan, you know, spend all that time, spend money buying food in an expensive city, and then drive home for another hour. The dynamic has changed. And I think CEOs need to recognize that and understand that maybe they just need to rethink the way in which they do it, the way in which they find community, the way in which they provide those other benefits that used to exist face-to-face -face, and do it in a more creative way with the technology that they have at their fingertips. All right, Ron, so let's zoom out of empty Manhattan office buildings and Zoom 
back into the rest of the world. So I'm going to read a headline from Reuters, and then I'm going to read you a text I got when I asked a very smart buddy of mine, Mike, a guy named Mike, about it. it. said, quote, contagion fears spread as China property sector cash crunch intensifies. And it says China's largest private real estate developer, Country Garden, is seeking to delay payments on a private onshore bond for the first time, the latest sign of a stifling cash crunch in the property sector, piling pressure on Beijing to step in. So I asked my buddy about this and I wrote, how can a command economy have private industry that doesn't get bailed out? And he wrote back, I don't get it. To be completely candid, I don't understand the Chinese system very well at all. You know, my buddy who runs an investment fund has been to China a dozen times to try and find investment. And every single time he comes back and says that everything in China is a fraud. He says that when he looks under the hood, some aspect is significantly worse than it was portrayed. I think in general, the Chinese have done a good job mending communism with pseudo-capitalism, but I think there are also growing pains with that combination that they've largely tried to hide from the rest of the world. I think eventually those cracks in the dam could manifest into a catastrophic failure. Yeah, I'm right there with that. And, and you know, let's hope it's not Three Gorges Dam, because if that thing ever breaks, it's going to kill tens of millions of people. Um, China, instead of going through growing pains, in my estimation, and this is my own personal view from having seen Japan presumed to be the winner of everything in the late 1980s, I think China's in its death throes economically. I think they have done so much that is so brittle, that is so hard to fix, that the problems in their property sectors, as you point out, aren't just limited to this one company. They have 50 ghost cities in China that have no inhabitants. These are massive cities that literally have no inhabitants in these apartment buildings. Youth unemployment in China is 21.3%, which is a record. And they've just ordered their officials in the government to stop reporting on youth unemployment because the numbers are so bad. It's an extremely brittle system in, in a weird way, not just like Japan. It also reminds me a little bit of, of the Russian economy under Brezhnev. It was brittle. It was stale. There's not much they can do right now to stimulate economic activity. They've overbuilt everything. They have excess capacity everywhere. Their exports last month were down as much as they were during the pandemic and their imports as well. So their economy is growing extremely slowly, if it's growing at all. The Communist Party under President Xi is much more like the Communist Party under Mao Zedong than it was under Deng Xiaoping, who liberalized China in the post-Mao world. I think China is an accident waiting to happen. And again, I've not been, but I know that when you look under the hood of a lot of these different institutions, when you look at the way Xi is putting party over prosperity, you know what that looks like historically, and it simply doesn't work. Because, you know, there are, what, 1.6 billion Chinese citizens? On the way to 800 million at the end of the century. Right. So they're already headed down population-wise. And not only do they have a youth unemployment problem, they have a youth problem, right? They have all these unmarried young men. And the lie flat movement where they refuse to go to work and things like that. Yeah, they have unmarried men. And look, to be blunt, they killed the girls, right? I mean, there was a lot of infanticide that went on during the one-child policy. And if it wasn't a boy... They didn't make it. So they have an enormous demographic problem, bigger than almost anybody else. Japan has something similar. They have more centenarians than they have births right now. You know, that's the thing about G and about those systems. And we've seen this, I think, in Turkey too, which is as the economic problems start to pile up, the grip of the authoritarian starts to tighten because that's always the reaction. That's the knee jerk reaction. Squeeze tighter, 
because you're afraid of anything happening. But, you know, in the infamous words of Princess Leia, the tighter your grip, the more people will slip through your fingers. <laughs> yeah. So it's China. It's Russia to a lesser extent. It's a smaller economy, but the ruble's crashing. The ruble's worth less than one penny at this point. The Russians just raised interest rates to try to defend the ruble. I don't know if you saw Argentina, but they had an ultra-rightist take the lion's share of the vote in their pre-presidential elections. They have a hundred and some odd percent inflation rate. They just raised rates 20 percentage points to 118% two days ago. Their currency was devalued by 18%. You have these hotspots all over the world. In a certain sense, this reminds me of 1997, 1998, when we had the Asian currency crisis and then the Russian debt default and currency collapse that led to the end of long-term capital, a big hedge fund here in the United States that posed some financial market risk for us back then. There are these events coalescing around the world from an economic and financial market perspective, not to mention the geopolitical risk that's out there, that to me represents some significant risk of disruption, even to our economy. These things can happen overseas and they can shake the very foundation of systems. And then the Federal Reserve usually comes in and responds. People clamor for dollars. They buy U.S. Treasury bonds. The money floods here to the safety of the United States, whether or not we have a AAA debt rating or not. And we somehow benefit from this turmoil in the longer run. If I had to make a guess in the next 15 months, something like that's going to happen. And it will probably, after the initial shock, redound to our benefit. And I mean, not only authoritarian governments, tyrannical governments have economic problems. Democracies have economic problems all the time. But you talk about Argentina. I've, I've been to Argentina years ago, Ron, more than 10 years ago now. But Argentina on its face, aside from its beauty, you know, Buenos Aires is a cosmopolitan modern city. It's got a huge agriculture economy. It's got a huge tourism. And so this would seem to be a country that should be able to sort itself economically just based on the fundamentals of the things that people do in Argentina, whether or not that's raise beef cattle or welcome, you know, American or North American tourists. When I look across the kind of authoritarian world, you just see how brittle these systems are, whether it's Turkey, whether it's Hungary, whether it's Russia, whether it's China, whether it's certain countries in Latin America, North Korea, which has no economy and has millions of starving people. I don't know how these things play out in the longer run. I just know from my experience, having grown up in a Cold War environment and beyond, they just don't work. And I don't know if they eventually go democratic or whether they implode. But again, on an absolute and relative basis, Barring anything crazy happening here, the U.S. again looks, you know, I don't care how you want to describe it, it's the best house in the bad neighborhood, whatever you want to say, it's still better than everybody else. Let me go back to Asia and to South Asia. The Chinese, you know, they've got their, was it Belt and Road program that they tried to basically buy their way into places. You've got India, right, which has surpassed China as the most populous country. But both China and India, and I'm going to say India post-Dominion status, which is, you know, is 80 years, but not that long, seem to be insular too, which is, you know, the Americans were big, we're loud, right? We're boisterous, we smile a lot, right? And we're everywhere, even though we don't have the most people. Maybe that's because we have always accepted those from without to become part of within. And then we send that sort of feeling back out into the world, Ron. How does the insular nature of countries, especially the size of countries like India and China, how does that affect their competitiveness, if that's the right word, in a global world where like, China wants to be in charge, but they want to do things their way and they don't really want anybody else to talk about it? 
China in that regard is not quite unique, but almost unique in the sense that there are only so many ways you can deal with China, right? You can't publicly humiliate the regime because then they retaliate quietly, or now they're looking for military dominance and they want hegemony in their part of the world, which we're countering by bringing the presidents of Japan and South Korea together at the White House, getting closer ties with Australia, with the Philippines, and basically ring-fencing China from a military perspective. It's their way or the highway. The problem is, you know, they don't have outside of new military power, they're going to lose the economic leverage that they once had. India is a different story in the sense that rather than being brittle, they're dysfunctional. They have a political system that simply doesn't work. If they had done in the last 40 years what China had done with its infrastructure, with modernizing rural areas, with bringing people out of poverty, India could have easily been the most powerful economy in the world. They just, from a political standpoint, and given the way that their country is structured, given the way their states operate, given the tensions that they have with Pakistan and China, they really, in a lot of important ways, haven't gotten out of their own way to grow in a manner that befits a country that does have 1.8 billion people, very well-educated, middle class that is bigger than 300 million people. You know, They have the stuff to really forge ahead. The problem is they keep choosing China and Russia as more dependable partners than they are the Western world. And I think they would benefit from a geopolitical pivot, I think, more than almost any country on the planet. Well, because Narendra Modi is another sort of authoritarian-ish guy, yeah, right? Ish, yeah. In a weird way, I mean, I don't know who else you lump in with him like that as being, you know, ish, but he could make great strides if he focused more on economic advancement than, you know, concentrating political power. And India would be formidable. And it would be a great ally for the United States because you then would have a bulwark against both China and Russia simultaneously. If we were able to pull that off, I would love to see us cozy up to them in a way that's meaningful because they do have a lot of talent. Look, we could use more people. We could easily open the door to a wide variety of individuals from countries like this that have, you know, highly educated populations that they could send over here and help fix our demographic problem, which we also happen to have, just not to the same degree as some of the other countries around the world. Well, yeah. And let's bring it back home as we close up here, Rod. So you say you're the proud owner of three Gen Zers. I'm the proud owner of two on the other end of the Gen Z spectrum. They don't marry as much. They have kids later. If they have kids at all, they don't have as much sex. They don't smoke as many cigarettes. They don't do as many drugs. They don't drink as much alcohol. But, you know, they don't seem to be interested in the things that we were sort of interested in, right? That they just have a different worldview and I'll tell you, I mean, even just the, I don't know if you can appreciate this. I know I can't even, I got 11 and 13 year old, like they speak literally almost a different language than I do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have some communication struggles, I think with my two younger kids who are 21 and 20 and either one is entering college belatedly, he's been a music producer for three years and decided he wanted a business degree. And so he's now beginning to speak my language more fluently, although we have differences of opinion on, on a wide variety of things. My younger one who's going to go into wealth management is kind of locked on. It's funny that you say this. I look at them and their friends and I see some really hardworking, focused kids and they're like, dad, you haven't seen the rest of our friends. You know? And so they're telling me what you're telling me, which is that you know, some of them have kind of checked out in a way and aren't fully engaged. Look, some of that has to be a function of age. Some of that has to be a function of the disruption that they went through. I mean, listen, my generation, I'm a tail and baby boomer. So you know, there are plenty of us who were idiots, you know? I mean, we're walking around bumping into walls trying to figure out what we're doing. Some of my friends would, you know, get stoned before school, go to the beach, surf, and then, you know, come to Algebra Stoned. 
I don't know that generations are that different. I do agree with you that they're behaviorally, from a relationship standpoint, a little different. But the hard part for me is I don't see them at home. All three of my kids are involved. One's engaged. The kid thing is an open question. But yeah, look, I think every generation says this about subsequent generations. So I don't know that it's that different than you know my dad having extreme trouble with my brother over the length of his hair in a not quite post-Beatles environment. Or my mother's father listening to classical music and opera and losing his mind when she listened to swing. I think we all have you know some complaints about the next generation being not as hardworking, not as plugged in. And then they roll around and they do have kids eventually. They do have mortgages and they lock on and they become us. And please forgive me. I did not mean to impugn their work ethic. It was the, just the differences I've seen because I know, look, we have, you know, I don't know, probably a 10 or 12 Gen Zers and they all work their tails off, right? 24-7. The difference is, of course, that they don't often have to leave their apartments to do it. And if I told them they did, they'd go work somewhere else, as I said earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they have more distractions than we did, but we had more distractions than our parents, right? I mean, I still remember vividly the argument about how far away I should sit from the television set. You know, it was three feet minimum, right? And television was going to ruin our brains. I just think some of the concerns are very similar to the concerns of any generation that's aging out. And, you know, you can read this in Greek history as well. They say the same thing about young people, you know, back during the time of Socrates and Aristotle and Plato. So I'm a little less worried about the next generation, I think, than some people are. Well, and I would say, too, that, you know, as I I might have said to you before, Ron, like that generation saved our bacon electorally from my perspective last year. And if the focus in the next election is on social issues, I saw a really interesting stat. I don't know if you saw this. There are 32 million more Gen Z voters than there were in 2020. And there are 20 million fewer seniors alive to vote. That's a 52 million person swing at a time when you're seeing abortion rights constrained, voting rights, and LGBTQ issues. If that doesn't mobilize that demographic, then, you know, depending on what side of the fence you sit, there's a problem. But I think, you know, more than the economy, those are going to be the issues in 2024, unless we really you know, crumble into recession and have a crisis. I think those are things that mobilize young people, women, and people of color. And that was the difference in 2022 and could likely be the difference in 24. All right. Well, Ron, thanks again for joining me. Before we let you go, where can folks find you on CNBC and where can they find your work? I'm still on CNBC. In fact, I just renewed with them for another, I don't know, 18 months or so. Usually Fridays at two on Power Lunch is where I show up. I write for CNBC.com. I think I'll have a piece coming out this Friday talking about some of the things that we discussed, which is how to keep your eyes open for emergent issues that we may be facing in the next couple of months. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok, as long as it's around, at Reed Galen, and on threads and Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Ron and Sana, thanks for joining me. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.